Welcome everyone to the Future of Education. This is our uh, new interview series. It is Wednesday, February 11th, 2009. I'm Steve Hargadon, and our guest tonight is Julie Evans of Project Tomorrow. Welcome, Julie. I'm thrilled to be here. We are thrilled that you are here. Our thanks tonight to our sponsors and Knowledge Works, our sponsor Knowledge Works, and to Illuminate for their support of these events. Um, and our thanks to you for being here and being a part of this. I want to give a quick overview of the Illuminate environment that you're in. You will have a chance to ask questions and want, want to make sure that you um, know how the room works. If Julie decides to ask a question of the audience and we do a poll, a simple yes or no can be indicated by the green check mark or the red X at the top of your screen. Uh, you do have access to some emoticons. If you are really excited about something Julie said, you can clap. There's the clapping hand down at the bottom of the participant list. You can smile to indicate you're happy about something. This little icon means you're confused. <coughs> uh, I will assume that you're not confused about something Julie has said, but something about the environment, and I'll come to your aid while she's speaking. If for some reason you disapprove of something, you can do the thumbs down. I don't expect to see much of that tonight. Uh, later, if you would like to talk, you click on the uh, icon with the hand and the green up arrow. In doing so, you will see it puts a number next to your name, and it indicates that we can call on you and give you the mic. Otherwise, you don't actually have the mic until we've uh, given you that capability. Clicking on that hand again drops uh, your hand down. So if you, if you hit it accidentally, don't worry. Just uh, click it again, and it will drop down. If you want to send a message, uh, you do so in the chat. And you can see that's the in the whiteboard there, the send a message with the red box around the sand. You can send it to everybody in the room, or you can actually send messages to specific individuals. Um, I see all messages, so I just wanted to give you that fair warning. So if you, if you have something negative to say about me, don't send it in a private chat. Um, this is an introduction. Uh, it would be fun if you would put in the chat area uh, what your name is, or I guess we see your name, but uh, where you're from. Uh, uh, where you're located, uh, maybe what time it is, and what the weather is like. And then we're going to go ahead and put up a map. And I'm going to give everybody the ability to use the tools on the whiteboard. And if you see a wand with a little bright red dot at the end, that will allow you to put a, a red dot where you're located in the world. And that's kind of fun to see where everyone is. How fun, Peru. Phoenix, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Sunnyvale, Boston, Australia, okay, I'm going to switch off that screen. So thanks for doing that. And I'm going to move to our next screen. I'm, I'm going to let Julie introduce herself here. She has a formal presentation. Julie, you're welcome to do that as much as you'd like. I do have a good set of questions that I think I can ask. So the moment that you uh, tire of the formal presentation, let me know. And then we will open up to questions from the audience. So Julie, please go ahead. That sounds great. OK, well, I think this is going to be a lot of fun tonight. Um, what I've put together for you is a customized presentation based on what we have learned from K-12 students about their uh, not only their behaviors 
or activities with education technology, but also their values and their aspirations. I am the Chief Executive Officer of Project Tomorrow. I'll tell you a little bit about Project Tomorrow as we move uh, through the presentation. Uh, this is a particular quote that we got from Nick at Chicago Public Schools that I, I really like. It sort of um, is a combination of some old paradigms and some new paradigms, but he also talks about the newer teachers and the students' expectations. And a lot of what we've been doing with the Speak Up project is based on trying to make real for the kids what their aspirations and expectations are. In case you're not familiar with Speak Up, it is an annual research project. It's conducted through online surveys as well as some focus groups. It's open to every school in the country to participate, and all the participating schools and districts actually get their own data back. We've been doing this since fall of 2003, and since that time, we've had about 1.5 million surveys submitted to us from about 17,000 schools all across the United States, as well as schools in Canada and Mexico, and I saw we even had some guests on the line from Australia. We have had participation from Australia as well, which is kind of exciting. The Speak Up project is facilitated by our national education nonprofit group called Project Tomorrow, but some of you may be more familiar with us under our former name, which was NetDay. Our focus today is on science, math, and technology in K-12 schools. So I often get this question, so I thought I would start right off with it. Why do schools, districts, and states participate in Speak Up? Well, the number one reason that we have found from talking to our participants is that they really want to have a voice in national and state policy. And one of the things that we do every year is that we do share the results of the surveys with Congress, with the U.S. Department of Education, Commerce Department, the Administration, National Science Foundation, and many governor's offices. But we also find that schools and districts like to participate because they want to get some unique data from their stakeholders, particularly from students and parents, which tend to be a difficult set of stakeholders for them to put their hands around. Sometimes they use that data to support some specific initiatives. Sometimes it's to model civic engagement for their students. Sometimes it's just to be part of something really bigger than themselves, and that's all very valuable. If you are interested in some more data than what we are presenting here today, I will tell you that on our website, tomorrow.org, we have a lot more data from not only the students, but also the teachers, the parents, and the administrators that we've polled. And our big news is that on March 24th is when we're doing our actual national data release from Speak Up 2008. And those are the surveys that we collected in November and December of this past fall. We do that in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill in a congressional briefing. And at that point, then, there will be some additional key findings that are available on our website. We also have a whole series of reports on our website, and you can take a look at those as well. I won't go into detail here, but you can take a look at them. Okay, so getting into this specialized presentation, and this is really based on a call that Steve had put out, I think back in December, about things that we had learned during the year or, or new ideas that we had picked up during the year. And so what we put together was what we called our top 10 list of things that we learned from K-12 students. At that point, the handout, that the attachment that was on the site, was based actually on our 2007 data, which was from fall of 2007, because we had not at that point closed out Speak Up 2008. But what I'm actually sharing with you today is kind of a combination of 2007 and some of the unreleased 2008 data. So this is hot, 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 fresh right off the grill, shall we say, data. Uh, just so you know about our participation 
from Speak Up 2008, we had about 325,000 surveys submitted to us, again in November and December of this past fall. You can see what the breakdown is. And because the back end of our database is the NCES database, we're able to take a look at what our distribution is, both in terms of the types of schools, as well as where those schools are located and some things about their student population. And so you can see we have a nice, even distribution of urban, rural, and suburban schools. And we're also very proud because of the outreach we do that our uh, Title I eligible school number is as high as it is, as well as the majority minority student population. The types of questions, if we are not uh, familiar with this, with the Speak Up project, is we do ask about learning and teaching with technology. We ask about 21st century skills. We ask what the kids are doing both in school and out of school with technology. We asked a particular strand last year about science instruction and global competitiveness, in particular student interest in STEM careers. And then we've also asked over the last couple of years a series of emerging technologies about emerging technologies in the classroom, mobile devices, gaming, online learning. Actually, in 2008, we also asked about digital content, which is really interesting. And then every year, we ask all of the participants, so if you were in charge and you could design that ultimate 21st century school, shall we say, for learners just like you or teachers just like you, what type of technology do you think will have the greatest impact on student learning? And so that's a really important question. I'm going to share with you some of those results here. Uh, so let's get right into the data findings. Um, because of the fact that I am here in California, I always like to look between the cracks, shall we say, maybe between the fault lines. So quite often we're looking at not only what the kids are doing and thinking about, but where there are disconnects and differences, and then where there are opportunities for leverage points. So we'll, we'll get right into that here. The number one um, top ten item, shall we say, that we have seen, and in fact it has been the same number one item in the six years that we've been polling students in particular, is that this digital disconnect happens to be alive and well. In fact, we actually see it widening. And that's really the gap between, as we said, how today's students are living and learning and what's happening in their school environment. As many of you realize, the students actually tell us that they have to power down to go to school, and then they power up again at the end of the school day. We also, though, see not only disconnects between the students and the teachers, shall we say, the digital natives and the digital immigrants, as the terminology goes. We also see it between the students themselves. So for the students that assess themselves as advanced tech students, they have very different aspirations, values, and activities around technology than all other students. We continue to see differences or disconnects between girls and boys, and also between older and younger students. And we're going to get into all of that here uh, this evening, which will be kind of fun. Uh, so I don't know, Steve, if we can do this sort of an audience participation thing. But it's always kind of fun to ask audiences, what percentage of students, middle school and high school students, do you think consider themselves advanced tech users? Is it 6 percent, 24 percent, 70 percent? So we could either vote in the chat, I think, or I don't know if we can use the polling, but we could definitely vote in the chat component. So, so you can use the polling. You, you can use the polling. You okay. do so by clicking on the A, B, or C up at the top of your screen. Okay, cool. So everybody can do that, and we'll see where the uh, where the group comes in. And then Steve, do we have a way to see the results then? 
So I'm seeing the results on my screen. Are you? I'm not. So maybe you can just tell us what you're what you're seeing. Ah, I see now. Yes, I do. Ah ha ha. Okay. So it looks like most of our participants here today believe that C, 70 percent, is the right answer. Well, this is what I love about doing the survey. I get to say the survey says. So let's go ahead and see what the survey actually says. In fact, 24% of students say they're advanced tech users. And the interesting thing is that in the six years that we have been polling K-12 students, that number has stayed absolutely flat. There is a big, solid cohort of those 24% of students, in this case, middle school and high school students, that consider themselves advanced. Now, this is a self-assessment. And so it's interesting. We don't give them a skill test. We don't give them a list that says, can you do this or can you do that? But when we talk to the students in the focus group, what we hear overwhelmingly from the students is that many of the things that we may consider advanced activities or advanced skills, the students themselves look at those skills as just average because to a great degree there's a great deal of universality of the experience and of the opportunities to do those things. Uh, let's get into top 10 number 2, which is this concept of a, there is in fact a spectrum of digital nativeness. You know, we started talking about digital natives a couple of years ago, that sort of contrast between digital natives and digital immigrants. And it was interesting because we started seeing some really different things in our data. And so we started doing a little historical review. And this slide may be familiar to many of you. If we think way, way back, way, way back to like 1994, we all remember, many of us remember those days, that there really wasn't very much classroom Internet connectivity. It wasn't really until 2002, 2003, 2004 that we started seeing you know, the real pervasiveness where we could almost universally say that all classrooms or most classrooms had um, Internet connectivity. And it's interesting when you start putting then some of these quote unquote digital natives against that chart because if we look at today's 12th graders, so our seniors in high school, in 1996 they were in first grade. And as you can see, maybe 12% of their classrooms had Internet connectivity when they were in first grade. Our current ninth graders had about a 50-50 shot of having Internet connectivity in their uh, first grade classroom. And yet in 2002, our current sixth graders were in first grade. And if we had a group of first graders in front of us right now, they would all have had that sort of connectivity or to a large degree at, either had it at home or in the school library or even um, in a community center. And so when we start talking about digital native, who are we really talking about? Are we talking about the students that in fact had to learn how to use these third tools just like digital immigrants when they got to middle school and high school or the kids that truly have been brought up in this new digital environment which is in fact the very youngest students that we have in our schools today. Kind of an interesting thing to think about. What are these students doing with technology? Continues to be what I affectionately refer to as the big four, gaming, music, communications, and the social networking phenomenon. Just to give you some numbers from our data, about two-thirds of students kindergarten through 12th grade play games. Uh, gaming is very pervasive. We're going to talk a little bit more about gaming in one of our other uh, components. Um, we also have been talking about music. It is the number one activity for students middle school and high school uh, grades. Uh, the communication thing, girls still lead in that usage. And then the maintaining of a personal website. What I'm more interested in is some of the uh, tipping point items. And this is again gets to this spectrum of digital nativeness, which is really interesting. 
when we start thinking about virtual worlds and particularly what are the learning opportunities in a virtual environment, it's interesting because look at these numbers. And these are brand new numbers just from 2008. Over, over a third of students in grades 3, 4, and 5 told us that they participate regularly in some sort of virtual environment. That's compared to 16% of students in grades 6, 7, and 8, and 13% in, in high school. The reason for that is if you're familiar with any students that are in elementary school, we're doing a lot of virtual world learning, shall we say, in Club Penguin, and some of those different activities that are out there for the younger students specifically. And what's interesting to think about is that these students are, in fact, becoming experts in a virtual environment where their older siblings and peers are not having those same sort of experiences. It's really very, very interesting. Uh, getting on to number three, this huge explosion of access to mobile devices. And we have been chronicling this for several years. This particular chart I'm showing you is just an absolutely fascinating chart. And every, every time I look at it, I see something a little bit different. I'm going to point out just a couple things to you. But since we're making the slides available to you, if you have some other commentary on them, I'd love to hear what, what you see in this. If you look at the light blue bars, those are kindergarten, first, and second graders. We ask the students about their personal access to mobile devices. What types of access did they have personally? What were they carrying in their own pockets or backpacks? So look at that. Almost 20% of kindergarten, first, and second graders tell us they have a simple cell phone. About 30% have an MP3 player. Look at the smartphone, the TRIO BlackBerry number. Again, almost 20%, an additional 20% of those students say that they have that type of device. At the high school level, approximately 25% of the high school students have a TRIO or BlackBerry. Those numbers have just gone off the chart in the last couple of years. And what's really interesting is that when our uh, school leaders, school and district leaders, are thinking about, well, how am I going to fund bringing in laptops, bringing in different types of mobile devices for the students to use, this has been very enlightening to them to think about the access that many students already have and how do they leverage those resources that they already have. Let's get into uh, asking the students about the obstacles to tech use at school, because this is always a fascinating question. We asked the students how satisfied are they with their technology use in their school. And not surprising to any of us is the students say they're not too satisfied. It isn't very satisfied experience. I saw someone said something about firewalls, so here we go. When we asked the students, what are your major obstacles that you face using technology at school, the number one response is school filters and firewalls. That has been the number one response for six years. And increasingly, we also are seeing that popping up as an obstacle for teachers and even for our administrators right now. The second one on the list, though, is absolutely fascinating, teachers that limit our technology use. This popped up as an obstacle in 2007 and then was repeated again in the number two placement in 2008. What the students tell us in focus groups, and I hope this doesn't offend anyone, is that in fact they had better access to technology at their school before we all went and trained the teachers on how to use technology. The students felt that in fact teachers are more afraid today about using technology, particularly the Internet, in their classroom. And thus they are clamping down or restricting Internet use to a far greater degree today than they were even just a couple of years ago. It's really interesting to start looking at it, um, to start seeing the impact of that. 
Of course, the students still believe there are way too many rules in their uh, in the school that are limiting their tech use. The number one rule that came up that is really driving them crazy is they can't use their own devices, they can't use their own communication tools, and also the rules that limit use of their school's technology. The kids are very articulate about their total frustration or disappointment in the fact that their schools, many of which have spent large sums of money putting together interesting or very expansive uh, media labs, computer labs, digital media centers, and then those are shut down tight at 3 o'clock, not available to the students after school, not available on the weekends, not available in the evenings. Uh, the number one, number one uh, I'm sorry, the number five top ten item that we have is the students cry to use their own devices, and we just saw that. We asked the students, how could your school make it easier for you to work electronically? And the number one response that came up is, let me use my own laptop, my cell phone, my mobile device. Let me use that own, my own device within the school day. Schools continue in many areas to clamp down on those type of devices. And the other thing that the students want is not only to be able to use their own laptop if they have one, but of course they want access to the school network. And that, of course, sends a total shiver up the back of many CIOs, CTOs, and network administrators. Interestingly, we are also hearing from the students in focus groups that um, where they maybe do not have access to the school network, they are in fact setting up some proxy networks and getting around the network anyway. Uh, Steve, why don't we, before we go through the, the bottom five, shall we say, the next five, why don't we see if people have a couple questions, or maybe you have some questions for me before we get to the next five. Oh, you're doing a great job. Um, yes, in fact, if anybody does have any questions, you, you please feel free to raise your hand, and we can do that. Um, I, I did have a couple of questions I wanted to ask. When you talk about the digital disconnect increasing between students and teachers, that's so counterintuitive to me. I, I would have expected that both the student population and the teacher population would have been getting more uh, technology savvy, but it, you're saying it's actually increasing? Um, we are continue to see this wide disconnect between the teachers and the students themselves. And what's happening is that the students are outpacing the teachers in their adoption and their adaptation of technologies. And it's a it's an escalating type thing. And so, you know, they're exponentially moving ahead in the process. And so that does continue to in fact widen as opposed to getting smaller. And I know it is counterintuitive when we think about all the professional development that has been done and all, you know, all the wonderful information that's out there and support networks that are out there and resources that are out there. You know, it, it Every day it comes down to sort of the same conversation, unfortunately, which has to do with um, the culture of the school, the support in the school, and what's really happening in that school day that allows those teachers the opportunity to take the, the knowledge, the new knowledge that they have and use it effectively. And the students are feeling that as they're moving ahead and continuing to feel that they have to power down to go to school, that increasingly we're hearing the students talk about taking control of their own educational destiny and to some extent um, obliterating the relevancy of the actual traditional school environment, which is a very interesting conversation in itself. That is fascinating. Again, if you've got a question, please go ahead and raise your hand using the hand icon with the green arrow. And Julie, what about you, you list under the big four for students, personal websites, instead of calling it social networking, 
Is there a difference? Does social networking fit into that category for you? Um, it, it totally includes social networking. What we also found, though, was that there was still a group of students that were developing their own websites outside of the social networking component. And so we were just trying to be inclusive of all of those activities that kids were doing. Okay, so Jer has a question. Jer, I'm going to give you the mic. If you're capable of using the mic, you're welcome to, to click it on down at the bottom of your screen. Uh, or I do notice that you've posted it in the chat. If you prefer, we can just read it. Um, hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. I can hear you. Great. Well, thank you very much for all the information that you're providing. It's, it's really excellent. and. Um, I'm very happy to hear that because I'm trying to implement something very similar to what you are showing us. And I will be more than delighted to work uh, with you in that. I know that you are applying this to uh, U.S. schools. I'm trying to do the same. I work here in Lima, Peru, in a British school. It's a bilingual school. And we are very prone to use technology with students. So we'll be very, very glad to work uh, with any of the um, methods that you have been using, uh, or maybe um, I can share data with you and compare it in, in, in other uh, countries uh, other than English-speaking countries. Yeah, that'd be yeah, very that'd interesting. Be very and in fact, we have had, um, um, I'm, getting, I'm getting like a funny echo here all of a sudden. I don't know what that is, but I, I'm hoping you can all hear me fine. Um, we have, we've had a lot of interest in, this, in participation in SpeakUp from all around the world, in fact. And as I mentioned, we have a number of schools in Australia that participate with us, a number of schools in Canada. We also have schools in Mexico that participate. We have some schools in the UK that participate. Uh, we also have had a number of American schools in other countries that participate. We have not translated the survey at this time, though we actually have the parent survey available in Spanish. Um, but it would be very interesting to work with, with you or with anyone else in terms of how to make it this more of an international survey. Julie, let's uh, go ahead go if on, it's okay. Please? Yeah, that would be great. I have a couple okay. of questions, but I okay. want to wait and make sure that uh, you don't address them in the presentation. So if you'll go ahead, then we can uh, okay. maybe, maybe save 10 to 15 minutes at the end for questions. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, so the number six item that we had pulled out was this idea of online learning, but also the idea that to some extent, as with a lot of our data, it's defying some of the conventional wisdom that's out there. We did find that there was widespread interest in taking online classes among students. And as you can see, about 40% of high school students, 35% of middle school students, and even 15% of students in upper elementary schools said they would be very interested in taking an online class. This actually represents a 34% increase in student interest in an online class from 2007 to 2008, just an amazing increase. What's also been very interesting to me, and I've seen it through the focus groups, is the students have a great deal of familiarity about online classes, which was interesting to me. Uh, even if their school is not currently offering them in their grades or they don't have personal experience, they had a very good understanding of what an online class entailed and what that would mean for them. So uh, we have another little opportunity here to have an audience response. Um, and so my question to you is, what do you think is the number one reason middle school students want to take an online class? And I, I think some of you may already know the answer to this. Uh, so, so the only problem uh, I have, Julie, is that I, I can't do 
A through F, I don't you think. You can't do that many oh, responses. Wait. I can do yeah. A through E. Um, so let's do A through E. All right, A through, A through E is all right. I guess if you want to do think, F. If you think it's F. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, we can just vote on A through E. I'll tell you the answer is an F, so go ahead. <laughs> How about that? We can be flexible. We'll give you okay, another so few seconds like to answer, and, and then I'll go ahead and publish to the whiteboard as soon as uh, Okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to publish now, which will close the, the voting. Okay. Okay, so it looks like we had some split decisions here. It looked like um, people were thinking it might be E to work at my own pace, or A to get a class not offered at my school. Those seem to be the big vote getters. All right, let's see what the middle school students actually told us. And this is really interesting because the conventional wisdom on this is to take a class not offered, or to fit it into my schedule, or to take it for college credit. And as you can see, those were the high responses for the high school students. But for middle school students, the number one response was to get extra help in a subject where they were struggling. And in conversations with students, middle school students in my focus group about this, what the students talk about is that they want to take a traditional class at school but have access to an online class after school to get some supplemental help to be able to do some additional work or to be able to have access to an online tutor or really to be able to um, master through some of the areas where they are struggling. We thought that was really interesting and it may indicate a shift in thinking about online classes as just a convenience or an extra class or a college credit mode, but really to start thinking again about these students in terms of their own personal um, educational destiny. So that's very interesting. We also um, looked at it from the standpoint of, as you can see, amongst all the students, a lot of interest in this idea of working at my own pace and the, um, the um, opportunities that provided. Interestingly, and it's not going to come as a surprise to anyone here, when we polled the students on, okay, well what class is that that you need that extra help in? Where do you want to take that online class? Universally the same, it's in math. All right, let's talk a little bit about gaming because this is kind of fun. Uh, as I said before, about two-thirds of students kindergarten through 12th grade are regularly playing some sort of games. It's about 8 to 10 hours a week, and it's across all sorts of devices. So we're not talking just about console or, or handhelds, but really all sorts of different devices out there. And as you can see, it breaks down um, across, sort of across the spectrum when we look at it from a grade standpoint. So you can see that our youngest students, our kindergarten, first, and second graders, are more apt to be doing computer-based gaming than some of the other students. And our middle school students are the ones that are leading the charge in truly online games, whether those are single user or multi-user. Very interesting sort of breakdown. And look at the cell phone games. We think that's fascinating also. Uh, we also asked the students, because we had heard this in focus groups for many, many years, why should gaming be included in schools? What's the value of bringing some serious gaming into the education environment? And so what the students told us is that they felt it would be easier to understand difficult concepts, to engage more engaged in the learning material, better to practice problems. Those are all sort of the traditional things we thought about, and those were the high vote getters. The more interesting ones I thought were these bottom three, or these next three in the lineup that they felt that in a gaming environment 
within school, within a learning context, that they would in fact go beyond, try new things, see the results of their problem solving, and be able to direct their own learning. And those three just totally overlay a true gaming environment because when the kids are truly in a gaming environment, they are in fact going beyond and trying new things. They're seeing the results of their problem solving. They're directing their own learning. What's really interesting with this is that when I do this presentation, quite often we do this particularly around gaming in the context of some professional development with teachers, we go to the next level and we actually start talking about the new definition of failure or the new connotation around failure. From a gaming standpoint, the students are very comfortable with failure because for if they have been in a, a gaming environment of any context, they know that failure is in fact a stepping stone to increase learning, a stepping stone to winning or being successful, that you have to fail to be able to get to that next step. And yet for a lot of teachers, they're still stuck in the paradigm of failure is a bad thing. And that I've had teachers come up to me and go, oh my gosh, I never realized this. And now I understand why <laughs> when I'm telling my students that they're failing a class or failing a test, they don't really have the same connotation associated with it as students from a couple years ago. Really interesting. The other thing that I think is really fascinating with this is that overwhelmingly, and I mentioned this before, Students really feel, this particular generation of students, and particularly these more digital natives than some of the other students, really feel that it is their responsibility to direct their own learning, that their school is not the repository of all knowledge, and that they have to be in control of their own educational destiny. And we see this coming through with from the gaming environment right there. This idea of technology and student social activism was kind of interesting. It was um, a set of questions that we had never asked before, and we thought it was interesting to sort of drill down on it. Uh, we asked students, you know, how are you using different Web 2.0 tools or different online tools in your own personal life? And of course, communications and sharing music came up as the top two vote getters, as we talked about before. But then when I drilled down to some of the uh, things that were at the bottom of the list or, or not as prevalent, I thought this was really interesting and interesting to sort of keep a track of. About 17% students say that they are going online to research local and world problems. 15% say they participate, have participated in an online poll about world issues. Using their tools, particularly their social networking tools, either posting their ideas up about solutions to local or world problems on their social networking site, or using those tools to collaborate with other students about local solutions. They're creating some special interest groups on their social networking sites, and actually using those sites to collect and analyze data about world problems and some local solutions to that. And so I thought that really was an interesting sort of turn on leveraging technology, not only in a local environment, but really to be able to get the students engaged civically in their world. Okay, my next, my number nine is a wake-up call, as I like to say, for our nation's schools. The last couple of years we've been asking all the participants, the students, the teachers, the parents, and the administrators, particularly principals, is your school doing a good job preparing you or your students or your child for the future jobs? And it's been an interesting, very interesting to look at the results of this. So let me share some of this with you. So from the, from the different groups, as you can see, about two-thirds of our school-level principals say, yes, their school is doing a good job preparing their students for jobs in the future. They tend to be the most bullish here. Our district administrators, a little bit less bullish. Only about 50% of them say yes. 
teachers, and once again, this is about your school, not American education, not the school down the street, not a school in a challenged area. 47% of those teachers, less than 50% said yes. Parents even less than that. And when I go ahead and I disaggregate the data and I look just at our advanced tech students, and these are the, that cohort of students that self-assess themselves as advanced, less than a quarter of those students believe that their school is doing a good job preparing them for the future jobs and careers of the 21st century. That is truly a wake-up call for our schools and districts to start thinking about how are we preparing these students? Are, what sort of job are we doing in terms of making sure that these kids have the skills that they need? And my tenth item is my absolute favorite. I want to introduce you to something that we're calling the free agent learner. Uh, this free agent learner has a couple different characteristics. Uh, they are very interested, as we talked about, in self-directed learning. They are, feel that they don't necessarily need to be tethered to traditional education. They can be untethered at that. And they are truly experts at personal data aggregation. They can take little bits of, of information, data, and really assemble it into a cohesive knowledge base that they feel is part of a learning environment. We see that in their interest in online learning, particularly in that explosion of online learning, and also in their control over knowledge authenticity. Let me tell you a little vignette story from a focus group that I did um, in June in uh, a school district just outside of Houston. Uh, I was there with a group of sixth graders, uh, brought, asked to come in by the school to do this focus group with their sixth graders. They had been large participants in Speak Up for several years, and so had the wonderful opportunity to go and spend some time with their students. It was a science class. Sitting there, we were talking with the students, talking about their use of technology in school, also got into a conversation of what they were doing with technology outside of school. And a couple of the students started telling me, and then it sort of became a, a huge thing in the classroom that they all went, yeah, 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 that's exactly what I do. So they started telling me that on a regular basis, after school, they would go home, go online, and check up to see if what their science teacher had presented that day was truly accurate. They were, in fact, checking up on their teacher's knowledge and using the Internet to do that. Now, it was somewhat of an awkward moment because the science teacher was sort of standing over my right-hand shoulder. And so as you can imagine, I was like, oh, gosh, what, what have I stepped into here? But she was great. She stepped right up. And she said, oh, no, 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 I know they're doing that. In fact, I encourage them to do that. That's part of their way of uh, learning about science, learning to be good, inquisitive, uh, scientists in their own way, and also being able to leverage the technology. Now I will tell you, when I share that story quite often with different educator groups, and particularly with the higher ed community, there is quite, quite a level of panic that goes through the room with the idea that sixth graders are doing this right now. Uh, some of the other characteristics of our free agent learner, I'm sure you all know these, some of these free agent learners, is this unbelievable power of connections and their idea of creating their own communities. And those communities, again, not tethered to physical networks, but really built around their interest levels and also about the idea of sharing in new and interesting ways. And this explosion of mobile devices is just exasperating that particular characteristic and really making it even more plausible. And then the final characteristic I have for you for our free agent learner is really about experiential learning. We know from this particular generation that they're very interested in the relevancy of knowledge and the relevancy of content. But it goes beyond that. In fact, they do consider themselves content developers. And in fact, for many of these students, 
the process of learning is as important as the knowledge gained, and sometimes even more important than that. So it's actually the experiential act of going through the learning process, not so much putting the focus on the end result. And as we know, in a lot of traditional paradigms around education, it's all about the output, not about the process. And when we start looking at gaming and simulations and animation and the, and the excitement that kids have with the multimedia process, we actually see that that's really the process itself is a very important part of the process of the whole experience, not just the end product. And so that is very interesting. Um, I do want to leave some time for questions. So just a couple quick things. As I said before, we do have a lot more data on our website. We're doing that national data release on March 24th. We'll also have a whole bunch of new reports and presentations that we are uh, very liberal in terms of putting those up on our website. Those will be coming out later in the spring through the summer. I am presenting at NEC. If any of you are going to be there, it would be great to see you there. And I also wanted to share with you one last thing. Every year we ask an open-ended question on the survey. And so for Speak Up 2008, this is one of the, we had two open-ended questions for the students. Uh, but this is a very interesting question. We ended up keeping this open-ended question open through the inauguration on January uh, 20th. And as you can see, we asked the students to pretend they were the president and what would they do to improve schools. I will tell you I have over 250,000 of these responses from students all over the country. Uh, we have just started walking into uh, taking a look at some of that data and figuring out how we are going to meaningfully present those to Congress and of course to the administration. So stay tuned on that one. And of course we'd love to have you either participate or have schools or districts that you know of participate in Speak Up 2009, which will be opening up in October. You can sign up to receive some of our alerts. Uh, again, we'll have surveys for K-12 students, teachers, administrators, and parents, as well as a whole bunch of new question topics. And once again, the big benefit to the schools and districts, there is no fee for participation. It is open to every school or district in the country, but you do get back your own data as well as the national data for benchmarking. So let's go ahead, Steve. We've got a little bit of time left. Let's take a look at some questions. Great. It looks like we've got one question. I'm going to take advantage of my moderator role and ask um, mine first. Uh, one of the things that occurred to me as we talked about this quickly was that what about students who aren't really free agent learners? I mean, haven't there always been different kinds of people who learn differently and do different, uh, do well in different tasks? Is there a danger that we would leave behind the, the student who has done well in the more traditional authoritative learning environment? Uh, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that we didn't talk about today is you know, we've been talking more about that advanced tech user. And of course, you know, when I disaggregate that advanced tech user, we're seeing a lot of that free agent learner in that particular student self-assessment. On the other side of that spectrum is when I look at that student, and if you remember the number, about 6% of our middle school and high school students felt they considered themselves beginner tech users. There are dramatic differences in that small cohort as well. And I think one of the other messages that we have for educators is don't paint with a broad brush and assume that all students are either at the same level in terms of technology usage. You know, sometimes we paint with that broad brush and say, oh, well, all kids have a MySpace or Facebook page, or all kids love gaming, or all kids love doing this, or love doing you know, a multimedia presentation. And I think one of the things that we've all learned, and one of the things that technology allows us to do, is really to get more into that personalization of learning. You know, what our friend Steve Karen Henke talks about with the long tail of learning, 
really being able to personalize learning environments for these students that do have you know, all sorts of different ways of learning and not necessarily always make it all about technology or all about traditional paradigms. So you're absolutely right. Um, and that's, that's also where we are stressing the spectrum of digital nativeness that, uh, you know, let's not paint with the broad brush across all the grades either. So uh, JSL Avid, I've given you the mic. If you have a microphone, you can uh, click on the um, mic button down at the lower left of your screen. It looks like you have. Go ahead. Technology that the students might utilizing technology like that. Do you have collected any data on things like um, using social networking and uh, tools like Twitter in the classroom? What What's the student response to that kind of thing? Um, we asked that question this year, and we got a very low percentage in terms of student use of Twitter, particularly uh, in the classroom. We asked them specifically about in the classroom, and we have to remember that in most schools, students don't have access to either the equipment during the school day, and they definitely don't have access to online networks during the day. So, you know, we, we still see overwhelmingly, and, and you know, we all know there's pockets that are different. But overwhelmingly in our numbers, the students in fact tell us they have very little access to technology during the school day at all. And so we're, we're seeing that, but we're seeing it very, very small. Ron, I'm going to go ahead and give you the mic now. So Ron says he has no mic. You can see the recording icon. Can one of you post the playback link somewhere? Julie's name, perhaps. Yeah, and absolutely, it will be posted in a future education under the event page for this. And Julie, you can pick it up there and put it into anywhere you'd like if you want to. That it will be both the of the the full recording, audio, and chat. Great. So Bruce, I'm giving you the mic. Hi, uh, Julie, and thanks, Steve. I was just wondering if Julie had any data on uh, on how kids are taking uh, notes in their classes uh, electronically. I, I couldn't hear the last part of that. Bruce. I couldn't hear the last part of that. Bruce. Sorry, Julie. Just wondering uh, if you had data on kids uh, taking notes in their classes. Um, I actually have uh, I've done a little bit of that in focus group work with the students, and particularly talking to students that have uh, either you know are part of a laptop program or their school allows them to bring laptops in. And it's been interesting because the kids do talk about the fact that they are are using those devices for taking notes. They also, though, what was also interesting to me last year was that the kids were also talking about using their cell phones for note taking, and I thought that was really interesting. Was that they were looking whether you know they might not have the laptop, but in fact they were able to use their laptop, um, their cell phones for being able to do that. Whether it was a simple cell phone with some text messaging or also um, some smartphones, and be able to use that for note taking.
so again, if you've got a question, please feel free to raise your hand. Julie, I listened to a recording that you did uh, last year, and you said that one of your favorite, personal favorite questions that was going to be in the 2008 survey was, if the students were designing an online digital textbook, what would it be like? What kind of answers did you get to that? Oh, we got some really interesting answers to that. I did, I did love that question. How good of you, Steve, to remember my favorite question. How fun. Um, actually, I have the, the data right in front of me, so I'm going to uh, pull some of it right from the data. Um, some of the things that the students told us was that they wanted to be able to make, in this new electronic textbook, to be able to make electronic highlights or to be able to make notes directly in the textbook itself that they could then go back, at, back to and take a look at. Uh, they wanted to be able to have uh, built-in links to some useful websites. They wanted to be able to have access to online tutors at any time that those tutors would pop up whenever they had a problem. It could be a range of different tutors. They also, this is the one I thought was absolutely fascinating, they wanted to be able to have built into that textbook some quizzes, some tests, some different assessments that they could take on their own, really just for their own benefit, not for their teacher's benefit or not for their grade. That they could just go in and be able to take those at their own, you know, at their own pace. Uh, some of the other things that jumped out was to be able to download information to their cell phone, which I thought that was really kind of interesting as well. Of course, they're interested in the incorporation of games and animations and simulations as well, and to be able to have access to PowerPoint presentations or lectures that their teachers had created that were supplemental to the textbook itself, that those could be downloadable into this online textbook at the right time and place. Isn't that fun? It is. Did anybody mention um, video portability or, or the watching of lectures uh, independently? I mean, I know that's not inherent in that particular question, but I certainly find that in my own learning, I'm downloading video lectures all the time and then watching them on a, a portable device. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was it was two ways. One was to be able to download those things to a portable device, uh, and the other thing was to actually to be able to create some on their own. And so the students wanted to either create whether it was a video or a podcast to kind of test their own knowledge base to be able to create some of those things and share some of those with other students as well. So part again of that process of being content developers themselves and to be able to look at the learning process as um, you know, a collaborative activity, not just a solo activity. Okay, Heidi, I've given you the mic. If you'd like to ask a question, you can click on your uh, mic button. There you go. Click on your, uh, mic button. There you go. Is it working? Okay. Um, I just have a question about accessible use policies. And I know this one that my school uses um, seems to be really out of date as we're just starting to use technology and Web 2.0 um, abilities. And I was just wondering um, any comments you had about the balance between allowing the freedom for students to use uh, Web 2.0 tools and keeping them safe and privacy issues that parents might have. Um, that's, a, that's a really fascinating question. We actually asked a couple years ago about acceptable use policies of parents and what parents felt would be acceptable. And that data is, I believe that data is on our website if you want to take a look at that. We didn't ask that this year. We asked it a couple years ago. But what I want to share with you is an interesting vignette that I heard recently. I was doing a presentation on some of our administrator data 
and I had a panel that consisted of an assistant principal from a high school in a district and one of their district administrators, a technology person from the district office on my panel. And so the high school assistant principal um, got into this story. I don't, I don't think he had planned on getting into it, particularly not with his district person there. But he told us about how at their particular high school, they had decided to stop fighting the battle of uh, students using their cell phones and their laptops and their smartphones during the day. Uh, he said he gave up the fight. He said he felt that as an assistant principal, he was spending all day long collecting and cataloging cell phones uh, rather than really working on any instructional or important activities at the school. So what they did as an idea, and I thought it was really clever, I thought it was courageous, I thought it was innovative, is that they made lunchtime an internet cafe. So they had wire, have wireless access in their lunchroom, in their cafeteria. Students in that high school have free access to use their laptops, to use their cell phones, to use their smartphones, to use any of the devices they may possibly have during lunchtime. He said it totally has transformed lunchtime. If you think about lunchtime at a high school, and some of you may be at high schools, lunchtime can be a very noisy experience. He said lunchtime at that school is stone quiet. He said the students text each other across the table from each other. He said they're also doing all kinds of research. They're working on homework. They're doing all kinds of things. And he said it also helped solve that entire problem of students trying to you know, sneakily use cell phone here or use a laptop here or try to get on the network, all of these things. That in fact it eliminated that entire situation for them. And he said, you know, he sort of sheepishly sort of looked over at the district person and said, I guess we haven't told you that we've done that yet. It was kind of a cute story. Uh, so I think there are, I, I think there is definitely a need to reevaluate these acceptable use policies and to start thinking seriously about, okay, so what what are we trying to prevent here? I always get this, I always get questions about, well, how do we balance this between the safety issues? And it's interesting to go back to the kids because the kids themselves will tell you that they believe very strongly that the benefits of having that access far outweigh the potential dangers and that we should trust them to make uh, good choices, which is interesting. So Julie, in that same interview that I, or the talk that you gave before that I listened to recorded uh, on my portable device, you were talking about district visionaries. This sounds like almost a, a, a corollary, but different. Somebody who kind of gave up and then discovered something wonderful. But I wonder if you would talk a little bit about the role of the district visionaries and, and how, um, how you see them uh, helping to affect change. Um, it was very interesting. When we took a look last year at our administrator data, last year was the first year that we uh, did a survey specifically for administrators. And we were able to disaggregate that data between district level administrators and school-based administrators and principals. And we wanted to do a particular report looking just at that, that administrator data because we, we thought it was really interesting. And what, what happened in the course of looking at the data and doing the research and the analysis, was that we started to realize that there was a cohort of administrators, both at the district level and at the principal level, that actually had more in common with their students in terms of their activities and behaviors with technology, as well as their values and aspirations around technology, more in touch with their students, more closely aligned with their students than with their peers or with their teachers. 
And so we did some more drill down work looking just at that cohort and that actual that report, which is um, downloadable. You can take you can click on the link at our website and go over to Blackboard, which sponsored the report and download it there. Um, actually it started to chronicle those particular visionary administrators. We're going to be taking another look at them this year. But we particularly looked at what was their personal and professional use of, for example, Web 2.0 tools. What were their value statements around the importance of technology as part of the learning process? Where did they see, as we were talking about, in designing that 21st century school, what types of, that, of technologies did they feel would have the greatest potential to impact student learning? And as we said, all across the board, when we laid out those responses from that visionary cohort versus the students, they were directly in line with their students. And to some extent, again, a disconnect between them and all the other administrators. Thank you, Julie. That's been fascinating. Are, are there any final questions before we wrap up? Okay, I'm going to give a clapping hand for Julie. I'm going to do it a couple of times. Uh, Julie, I just love this data, and I love what you're doing with it, and I'm uh, really appreciative that you uh, could be here. Steve, we're going to let you sneak in. Did you want to ask a question? I've given you the mic. Maybe Steve was trying to clap his hand and hit the uh, ah. the ask button. Anyway, Julie did a great job. Thank you so much. I, I want to thank uh, KnowledgeWorks and Illuminate for helping to sponsor this event. Uh, Illuminate has a three for free view room. Please check it out. Uh, coming up on February 17th, Erin Riley from Project New Media Literacies was to have spoken with us. I think she has to reschedule. I haven't finalized that yet. On February 21st, we're going to do live on a Saturday a student panel from the Learning 2.0 conference, which should be a lot of fun. I think that's going to work out, and we'll give more details as that comes closer. February 23rd, Keith Kruger from COSIN is going to talk about global lessons. And then on February 26th, as a part of the PBS Classroom 2.0 combined show, we're going to have John Palfrey on Born Digital. And if you haven't picked up Born Digital, the book, it's surprisingly deep and thoughtful. I was, I've been very impressed with the portions that I've read. For more information on our interview series, please visit futureofeducation.com. Um, and uh, again, a, a big round of applause for Julie. I am going to put a link in here to a survey. This is a survey on uh, the interview session, and I'm going to put it as well into a web tour. If you're uh, willing to fill that out for us, it will help us quite a bit. Uh, when you're done, please feel free to exit the room. The recording for the uh, session won't process until everyone's gone. And so in, in about five or ten minutes, I'll actually have to kick everyone out. Julie, thanks so much. That was just really great. Well, thanks so much, Steve. You know, I, I love having the opportunity to share this data. And I also love the opportunity to continue the conversation. So if anyone that was on the line here you know, wants to continue this conversation offline, please contact me. I'd be happy to, to hear your thoughts, hear your ideas. We'll, we'll kick some more things around. I really think the conversation is an important conversation to have. Thanks, Julie. And thanks, everyone. Good night. <laughs>